right. Thanks, Ali. Um, let's pray as we look at that together. Uh, Father, we do thank you for these words of yours, and we thank you for um, your servant Jonah many years ago. We pray that we'll help, you'll help us to learn more about you uh, through his actions in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I knew a lady who uh, many years ago um, was having an operation done on her eyes, a fairly minor procedure, and uh, after the operation, she was going to need some help getting home. And so she took her um, six-year-old son with her um, because she figured that after getting the operation, she couldn't drive home. She had to go on public transport. She'd get the bus. The problem was going to be that after the operation, she wasn't going to be able to see clearly enough for a little while. So she was going to need the bus to catch, uh, to take her home and her son to read the number of the bus. So she's had the operation done. It's gone well. They've come out. And somehow a six-year-old has stayed occupied while she has a minor surgery. I'm not sure how that works. But anyway, they come outside and they're waiting for the bus. And uh, she says, I need the 148 bus. It could have been any number. We'll, we'll go with that. And, um, and okay, okay, that's fine. So the 148 bus, they're going to catch home. So she's standing there. She says, just read the number of the bus. And she's relying on her son. What she's noticing is that the bus is coming. And she's like, what number is it? What number is it? And he's not saying anything. And then as the bus is about here by far too late a time to signal for it to stop. The kid is saying, 125. Okay. 148. Oh, that was our bus. Oh, okay. After about 20 minutes of this, it's dawned on this lady that her son is short-sighted. He can't read the numbers of the bus. Coincidentally enough, we're at the uh, eye doctors. Let's go back in and have a quick checkup, shall we? As they went, they checked him up and sure enough, he was short-sighted and needed glasses. Um, Now, uh, sometimes when someone points something out to you, you can actually see it far more clearly than you could before. And in the case of short-sightedness, there's a definite corrective for that. Our vision is blurred. We get some help for it, put glasses on, and can see clearly. Um, easy to see what it is when it's a matter of focus like that. On some other things, it can be a bit more difficult to see clearly because our sight is a little bit um, distorted because there's so much going on around us. I don't know if you've heard of the trick eye museums. Anyone ever heard of those things? Oh, you're about to. Don't worry about that. Uh, they're, they're, they're museums where they put a... Um, you would have heard of them, but you don't know what they're called. They're museums where they paint a picture on the wall on the floor, and then you stand in front of it, and it looks like you're doing something. Yeah, you've, you've seen these before? Um, this one's actually quite good, because you can just see the corner of the wall there, and they've painted the image on the floor on the wall, um, and it makes it look like you are skydiving when you jump into this particular picture. How good's that? How exciting. Um, you get to look like you are flying out of the sky and all the way down. However, you're just sitting there. And when you're standing before these pictures, it doesn't look as much like something's happening. For example, this one looks like you're crossing the river. Um, in, in, it's quite amazing there. In this one, you're being... Is that Jonah? Oh, no, it's not. Okay. You're being eaten by a fish. And then there's this one where you're at the circus. Okay. But in all these pictures, they're just a background. It, it, when you get the photo, it looks great. But while they're taking the photo, they kind of stand here and you're like, I don't know if this is really going to look like I'm skydiving, but okay. And they take the photo and then you, you see it. And you're like, oh, wow. That's actually quite amazing. Um, it's a bit like that in life. There's a lot of things that go on in life and capture our attention. And it's easy to live in the photo land and not to see what is really around us. It's very easy to live in the photo land and not actually understand what's going on in the world we're living in. And there's so many things that demand our attention, it's easy to lose sight of what is actually important in life. And it can actually end up clouding our prayer life as well. We can pray for the photo and forget some of the other important things in life. We can forget who we really are, what we were made for, and our prayers get shaped by the photograph rather than by the reality. Now, we're looking at Jonah chapter 2 today. 
Um, 10 points if you picked up that Jonah was praying a prayer there. Well done. Um, and uh, no guesses. We're going to actually think about the things we pray for. We're going to see how this guy, um, thousands of years ago, is going to encourage us to check our vision and to see behind, beyond the photo and to see the reality of who we are and maybe influence the things that we pray for. Now, if you uh, missed last week or you've forgotten already, that's okay. Jonah was a prophet that God said, go to Nineveh over here. And Jonah said, no way, I want to go. I want to run away as far as I can. And he said, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. And he fled. He refused to do what God wanted. Not because he was scared, but because he hated the people that God sent him to go to. And we got reminded and challenged in that first week of Jonah, that uh, last week, that God's message is not just for people that we like. Okay, uh, That's not what it's for, people that we're willing to speak to. Um, we actually have to think, who do we think deserves God's forgiveness? And what our actions say about what we actually think. Now, we pick it up today. Uh, we're looking at chapter 2. I just want to refresh our memory of where we're at. Chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So remember the story. The guy gets eaten by the fish. It's well drawn over here on the um, whiteboard for us. Someone in the belly of a fish. Or oh, is that a dinosaur? That'll do. Um, and, um, and we know it should be. It's not very shocking. Hands up if you've ever heard of Jonah before being in the belly of a fish. Anyone? All right. Now, just being brave for me, what happens to Jonah next? Tim? Yeah, what was that? He gets spat out of the fish. Uh, We all know this, okay? And so it's not particularly amazing for us, is it? Okay? Um, But think about it. A guy has been thrown off a ship into the ocean, and he's sinking down, and this fish has swallowed him. And he's inside the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, that's not necessarily a literal um, time stamp. It's actually a designation. So uh, imagine you were um, in the snow fields and there was lots of snow there. And there was an avalanche and some guy was lost. And they grab you and they say, put your coat on, we need you. And you're walking around and you're, for hours and hours you're searching. And finally you give up and you're walking back towards the, um, the chalet. And you hear someone saying, we've got him, we found him. And you turn to the person next to you and go, wow, I thought for sure he was six feet under. What are you saying in that scenario? Are you saying you thought he was six feet under the snow? I mean, maybe if you're a very literalistic person, you might be. But you think he's dead, all right? Uh, in Jonah's day, in the belly of the three days and three nights was the time they thought it took to travel land of the living, land of the dead. And so they're saying that Jonah here is dead as a doornail, or should be, as good as dead, all right? That's the indication behind that phrase. Um, and so... What we see as we read on is that Jonah actually isn't dead. Um, There's some strange deliverance here. And Jonah prays a prayer. And you might expect him to say a certain word in his prayer. Um, A magic word. Well, what word do you think that might be? I know Tim, he just said it, but no, no, you've had enough answers. Sorry, mate. Uh, Anyone over here (laughs) know what magic word you might expect Jonah to say? Come on, there's only so many magic words. Does anyone here teach their children the magic words at all? Yeah, Andrew? Please. Okay, not bad. You, you might expect that. Um, yep. Uh, maybe. Not the magic word I was looking for, though. What's another magic word? That, maybe I'm being a bit generous and saying it's a... Sorry, that's the word. Is that a magic word? <laughs> maybe not. No? Then teach your kids to say sorry, John. They're, they're never done wrong. In the... No. <laughs> Joking. Uh, sorry, I, I think of sorry as a magic word, um, but maybe it's not. Anyway, he should say Sorry. He should say please as well, but he should say sorry. And we've got to be careful when we read this prayer here because we expect Jonah to say sorry. He's been thrown overboard, eaten by the fish. He's going to say sorry and go and do what God wants. That's what we think because we know we've heard the story before. 
But that might not necessarily be what Jonah is doing, okay? Because hindsight might cloud our vision and we think, therefore, this must be what he's doing. But I wonder, I'm a bit sus about his prayer, to be honest with you. And, you know, I could well be wrong in my uh, thinking here, but it might be that Jonah is not particularly sorry, okay? I just want to put that to you. So let's have a look at it. And remember, as we do, that the Bible is a collection of 66 books, um, not the rantings of a madman, but they're books that tell stories written at different times. This is a narrative. It's telling us the story of Jonah. And we know that when he finds himself back on dry land, he doesn't still love the people of Nineveh. So for him to be saying sorry here, it would be a bit incongruous with the line of the story. But we'll see. Uh, so let's have a look. I'm going to put a bit of an accent on here. Not an accent, a bit of emphasis on here as I read this. Uh, let's see what Jonah says. In verse 2, his prayer. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. And see, isn't Jonah supposed to be listening to God's voice? God said go, but Jonah's saying, God, you heard me because I'm, I'm great. Well, I'm not sold yet, Craig. Keep going. Okay. Verse 3, uh, he seems fairly confident in verses 3 and 4, and he seems to be blaming God for his error. You see that? Uh, he says, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet... I shall again look upon your holy temple. He's fairly confident for a guy sinking down into the mire, isn't he? That he's going to see God's holy temple again. And then verses 5 and 6, it starts to sound a bit better, frankly. He says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Okay, I think he's getting it. Maybe Jonah's about to say, Sorry. Verse 7 and 9. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. No, it seems to flop on the end, doesn't it? There's no sorry there. Uh, maybe I'm being unfair on Jonah, but he's using scripture. He's quoting some parts of scripture. He's saying the right kind of things, but they all seem to suit him because he's not saying sorry. He even, he even goes so far in verse 8 there as to mock the sailors, those who pay regard to vain idols. From chapter 1, the sailors were worshipping their idols. The boat was sinking. They said to Jonah, who do you serve? The real God. They chuck him overboard because that's what they, they don't want to do it, but they do it because he says you have to. And then the sea stops and they worship God. They turn from their vain idols. And yet Jonah's saying they've got no chance because they worship idols. He's making fun of them while he's sinking to the bottom of the ocean. No, God's lucky to have you, Jonah, in your own opinion. I, I, I wonder. It seems to me that he's locked into a certain way of thinking, uh, a way of thinking that uh, is not uncommon, unfortunately, um, a way of thinking that says that God is there to rub his back when he needs it, to bail him out when he makes a bad decision and to verify him when he needs it. But he's not there to do what God wants unless it aligns with what he wants. And it really struck me, the more I read it, the more it came across that way to me. And I was struck by the fact that people think that way today quite a lot as well. They think that God is there to make up for a lack they may have in life. It's an, it's, a, it's an unfortunately common way of thinking in churches all around the world. They might not express it that way, but they carry themselves that way. Why should I have to do what God says? 
Oh, I'm happy to do some of it, but not all of it. But why should I do it all? But anyway, because God's lucky to have me, they think. Why would God want someone else when he's got me? Because I'm better than other people. Now, they don't say it out loud, but it comes through in the way they carry themselves. They know their scriptures well. They can quote them to you. God wants this for me in life and this and this. But when it comes to that and that and that, well, they conveniently ignore those things. God wouldn't ask that of me. And there's a key word that they've dropped in their thinking, and the word is obedience. When I was younger, uh, I, at school, at high school, I um, played cricket for the first time, and I was lucky enough to make it into the under-13Cs, the lowest team for the under-13s. I was obviously quite the talent. Um, but for some strange reason, uh, the following year, I became the captain of the under-14Bs, all right? So I'd progressed quite a bit uh, in my cricketing career. Now, it wasn't a massive promotion because the team I was promoted into hadn't won a game yet, and they weren't about to change that with my captaincy. But I had the theory that cricket involves more than batting, bowling, and fielding. It also involves tactics. I was an early pioneer of this whole 2020 stuff, right? Not really, but I had this idea. Tactics is important. And uh, I thought we didn't win a game last year. How do we change that for this year? Now, I don't know if you... Has anyone, has anyone watched junior cricket? No one? I wouldn't recommend it. Not a, not a wonderful way to spend... Even when you're playing it, it's not a good thing. But you've got the wicketkeeper, okay? And there's something that wicketkeepers do at junior cricket level. Do you know what that is? They miss a lot, okay? So when the bowler bowls it, they're supposed to catch it, right? But very often, it sort of flips out of their glove and goes down there. And when that happens, what happens? The batsmen take a run or two, okay? Now, I had noted this in my disastrous under 13 seas career and maybe made a bit of a living running uh, off those myself and i thought here we go here's tactics we'll get our wicketkeeper doesn't matter who it is and then we're going to put a backstop in as well behind the wicketkeeper so when he fumbles it they pick it up and we save runs well it worked a treat that season uh it saved us in our first game we didn't give away any runs at all by to the wicketkeeper fumbling the ball it, it's there's a caveat to that because we only scored nine ourselves and um, the other team only had scored 10. So there wasn't much opportunity for them to... But I think that Jonah is treating God like his backstop, all right? I'll take care of it. But if I fumble, God, you can bail me out then. And so many people treat God that way in life. We don't want to change our action and thinking to obey, to obey what God says to us. No, no, we want God to fit in with our plans, okay? And there's a whole bunch of things God says. God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, I don't have to do that. He does. He just doesn't realize it, right? And, and, and Jesus says to us, go and make disciples. And we think, oh, I don't want to obey that one. I'll do other things, but not that. But we have to be willing to change our thinking and actions to fit in with God's plan. We can't say to ourselves, well, if it suits me, I'll do it. But I haven't got time for it right now. See, we can become like Jonah and get caught up in ourselves and our own interests in life. And when that happens, well, we've got to change it somehow. The, the key is to think about how we know it's happening and i thought of a good diagnostic based on jonah here it could be your prayer life what does your prayer life say about what you think is really important as a follower of god okay what do you pray for um rhetorical question that one by the way don't have to give an answer but just think about what do people pray for i thought about it and i thought maybe these are some of the main things people pray about wealth okay maybe not to get rich all right but they pray for their financial situation if they feel like they haven't got enough or they need more, whatever it is. People do pray about that, okay? Um, health. I reckon number one with a bullet of things people pray for is their health, okay? Um, 
For many, it's the only thing they pray for, um, which might insinuate they think they don't need God in any other aspect of life. Um, what about family? Some people pray a lot for their family, uh, for their kids to succeed, for their family to behave well, for hard times to fade away. Um, other people pray for career, whether it, they're having trouble in their job or, or they want a new job or they haven't got a job. That's the whole part of it as well. Maybe even for more pleasure in what they're, in what they're facing at work. Some people pray for relaxation in life. I'm finding life too much. I need relief. I need a holiday. Remember those things? Yeah, we'll have one of those again one day, I'm sure. And other people pray for knowledge, whether it's you know, the remembrance to pass an exam or to learn something new or whatever it might be. Now, these are the things that uh, creep in and take all our focus. Are they bad things to pray for? None of them are bad things to pray for. Does God want us to pray for those things? Yes, he does. But if those are the only things that we're praying for, if that's the, the extent, the full extent of our prayer life, we might be surfing the sky in a trick eye photo and we've actually forgotten the reality because it's not all there is to life, is it? It clouds our attention and it demands more and more from us, but it's not all there is. The reality is quite different, isn't it? We are made to be in relationship with God. God wants you to bring those things to him. But we should be praying that we will be those people who honor God in the way we live our lives. When Jesus is asked by the disciples, teach us to pray, he gives them the Lord's Prayer. And he does say, pray for your needs, by all means, but also pray for God's kingdom and pray that God's name is revered. And as we're praying these things, that should shape the way we actually live our life as well. We come back to Jonah, we see him here in the belly of a fish. I wonder if he could have prayed more along the lines of, I'm a wretched man. I don't deserve to be in your kingdom. I don't deserve to be with you in glory. I, do, I deserve the opposite. But for some reason, Lord, you have plans for me still. So send me to Nineveh, send me anywhere. I'll do whatever you want, Lord. Rejecting you is futile. I'll trust you. I'll live for you. Instead, in verse 9, what's he saying? But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Aren't you in the belly of a fish, Jonah? <laughs> Come on, mate. But God shows Jonah great mercy in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You know, uh, we may feel bad about ourselves sometimes. We may feel like our relationship with God could use some work. But as bad as you might ever feel, just remember that God here has mercy on Jonah, even if he is self-righteous and arrogant in his prayer. God still has mercy on him and still wants to use him. God has mercy on us and wants to use us. Here we are. It's the light, weather hand. You've seen this illustration before. And our sin is piled up to the extent that God cannot even see us through the weight of our sin. And Jesus comes in perfect relationship with God and takes it all upon himself that we might be presented pure and blameless. All right? Pure forgiveness. It's true. So stop looking at the photo and look at the reality now. Okay? We've got to remind ourselves of the gracious God that we follow and shape our prayer lives to reflect his glory. And I was thinking of a couple of things, um, just a couple of changes, hot tips for you to take away. Um, Because we've got to avoid Jonah's refrain of how great am I and instead sing how great is our God, right? We've got to not literally sing it, but we've got to, that's got to be our our, our way of speaking. And I, I, I thought, I don't know, there's a whole bunch of ways you could do it. But one of the key things is just to turn the attention off yourself and think of what God would want to see happening, okay? Um, and I'll just, just a couple of little um, things that you could take on, perhaps. 
Um, they're quite simple. Um, and it's a very simple thing to remember. It starts small and gets slightly bigger. Pray for a person, your street, and your suburb. There you go. Simple. And pray that God's will will be done in the lives of those three areas. So someone you know, whether it's a, a follower of God or someone who doesn't follow God, pray they'll come to know God, all right? Or pray they might serve him. Pray for your street, that your street, people on your street might come to know and love the Lord. And pray for your suburb, that people in your suburb might be impacted by the good news of Jesus. I don't know if you were here. Was anyone here before church to get their chocolate? I know Tim was. Well done. By the way, if, you get, if you're here before 10, you do get a chocolate at the moment. It's um, pure bribery. No, you don't get one. Uh, <laughs> okay. See, um, see Lynn afterwards. No? Who was giving them out this morning? Who'd you get it from, Tim? I didn't get one either. So <laughs> maybe, he, maybe it's BYO. If you're here before 10 next week, Tim will give you a chocolate. There you go. Um, <laughs> and... Um, yeah, but on the screen, there's, uh, we've got a bunch of slides that just roll around. They'll, they'll be on after church, I'm pretty sure, Francis, won't they? And um, they just roll around with a bunch of the notices that we have. And on there, there's a prayer slide, a few things to pray for. It said just pray that three new families come to church this, this year, right? So just pray for our um, suburb, that three people, or your suburb, that three people from your suburb will come to church this year. Because that's a great way to share the good news with them. We talk about it every week. It's here a uh, great way for them to meet others and, and uh, learn about Jesus and join us in his kingdom. Um, we're at a significant point in history. Um, it's a unique time. Uh, you know, the, the goings-on of the last 18 months are very unusual. And so often, as I've been saying, when people come out of this, they want to know more. I've been let down by my life. I'm sick of looking at the photo. I want to see the reality. And they want more. And we have more to offer. Okay? So just pray that people will come and hear what we have to offer. Um, and be praying for a person in your street, your suburb, because with all the great revivals, with, with people coming to know God over the, over the course of history, almost always there's a turning of God's people to prayer and praying that he will act, that precedes them. So just bear that in mind in your prayers. I'm not saying don't pray for all the things that swamp you in life. Please do that, but also pray for God's will to be done, for his name to be glorified, and that happens in large part when people come to know and love him. I'm going to pray now, close in prayer for us, and then um, Chris might be continuing in prayer. Let me pray. Father, help us to focus our prayers on you, on what you've done for us, on how you would have us live our lives. We are so thankful that you care so deeply and want to hear about every minor thing in our life and all the things that are major as well. There are so many things that we face that are difficult for us. There are There are difficulties um, in families, there's uh, health issues that we or loved ones face, um, there are financial struggles, there are job threats, uh, job, jobs under threat or conflict at work. Father, there are so many things that we, that we need help with. And yet, Father, help us keep bringing these things to you and also asking for your will to be done, that your name might be revered. And so we pray for people that we know. We pray for our street, I guess, Rosa Street and Neville Street this morning in particular, that people from those streets might come to know and love you. You might use our church to that end. And we pray for the suburb of Oatley. We're right here. That three families might come and join our church by the end of this year. In Jesus' name. Amen.